You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're taking some time out of our regular schedule to bring you another in our series of COVID-19-related shows. Today's show is one of a two-part episode we put together on a few COVID-19-related issues impacting both employers and employees. Our guest for today is employment attorney, plaintiff-side attorney, Neil Pedersen. Neil was on the show a few years ago sharing his thoughts on arbitration agreements, and we're really excited to have him back on the show today. Neil and I are going to talk today about some specific COVID-19-related questions touching on a range of subjects that are important to both employers and employees. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome back to Workplace Perspective, Neil Pedersen. Thank you. It's glad, I'm glad to be back. I'm so happy to have you on the show again. Uh, before we get started, I want to make sure that you tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do. Okay. Well, I'm, I've been an attorney for a little over 30 years. Uh, I operate a small firm in Orange County dedicated exclusively to representing employees on issues of discrimination, harassment, retaliation, some leave issues, some privacy issues, and other related topics. I've also been an adjunct professor at a local law school teaching employment law and law practice management and technology for the last eight years. Um, Something relevant to this particular program is I've spent the last five years answering general questions online on a site called Avo, Um, and I've to date answered over 25,000 questions from people who are asking general questions related to uh, employee and employer issues. Wow, that many, really? Yeah. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. Well, Neil, you are certainly qualified to help us out today because Neil and I were talking the other day and we realized that we're both hearing a lot of the same questions from our clients about various COVID-19 related issues that are impacting um, everybody working from home, about being an essential employee and being asked to come back to work and the impacts of all of these new regulations with people who have ongoing disability issues. So we thought it'd be really helpful to sort of walk through some of these questions and give you, our listeners, our thoughts looking from both an employer and employee perspective. And we have lots of questions, so we're just going to go back and forth. Neil, let's jump right in. I'm going to start with our first question. Our first question is, I work in a business that is considered essential. I sneezed the other day at work. My boss immediately came to me and asked if I have a fever or any other symptoms of COVID-19. I didn't. It was just my allergies. I can relate, buddy. But I felt it was wrong to have to tell my boss about my medical issues. I refused and was sent home for 14 days. Was what my boss did wrong? What do you think, Neil? Well, I think that uh, we're in one of those areas where employers are probably, this, this particular employer was uh, in good faith trying to follow the CDC requirement that if employees display signs of having the, the virus, uh, that they should send people home for 14 days to quarantine in place. Uh, however, the way they did it was probably a violation of this employee's uh, privacy rights. And this is an issue where there's going to be some overlap where the employer is going to want to get certain information that may otherwise be considered medically private information. So it, it's a very difficult uh, question, and I'm going to preface everything I'm going to say in today's broadcast with this. Uh, 
we are living through very unique times. We have never really dealt with this kind of a situation before, I guess since the Spanish flu in the early uh, 1900s. Um, and so uh, I don't know how the law is going to ultimately develop on many of these issues. I can tell you what the law says now, um, and there may be some conflict or overlap, and where that happens, that's where courts get involved, and ultimately a, a decision is going to be made. So for an employer trying to govern its, uh, its business in a way to avoid potential liability, there's going to be an ultra-conservative approach, and then there are going to be other approaches that uh, will necessarily have to be considered because uh, of the risk-reward situation involved. So, for instance here, it is uh, considered to be a violation of employees' privacy rights related to their medical condition to ask them about any symptoms they may have related to any condition. So if an employer goes to an employee in this day and age and says, do you have a fever? Are you coughing a lot? Those types of things, while the employer is necessarily just trying to comply with the CDC guidance, it may well be violating the employee's rights by asking about those particular symptoms of a virus or other conditions such as allergies or the common cold or any number of other things that might have led to this sneeze. So we've got a difficult situation for the employer because they've got the CDC guidance and these rules regarding privacy. From the employee point of view, my position is the CDC guidance does not give the employer the right to ignore employee medical privacy. But employers do have options. Uh, for instance, if an employee uh, objectively uh, demonstrates signs of potentially having a disabling condition, they can require the employee to go engage in a fitness for duty evaluation with a doctor, and the doctor does not have to disclose to the employer specific symptoms or the like, but the doctor can say, yes or no, thumbs up or thumbs down, this employee can come back to work or this employee has to be um, uh, quarantined in place for 14 days. That's the basic guidance that I would have for this particular question. Yeah, and I think, so going back to what you said, it is, you know, this stuff is changing daily. It's, it's kind of calmed down a little bit. I was thinking about back to, you know, when everything first started happening, the pandemic designation made a difference on this particular issue, on this issue in particular, because it, it does change things in one regard when that direct threat, you know, with the pandemic designation, that means that there's, you know, deemed to be from the government a direct threat and the health aspect of it. And so it changes a little bit. What it doesn't change, like you've said, is the absolute confidentiality. In fact, um, you know, everything now is still a reminder. Everything you read says, oh, yes, and by the way, you can't, um, you know, you have to keep this information confidential. So confidentiality is absolutely key. Um, and I do think, though, that, the, the again, the pandemic designation made a bit of a difference. I, I want to talk about, uh, well, and that uh, the idea of being, of being tested positive and presumed to have. And I think that goes to that conservative thing you're talking about. Um, you know, on the conservative sides, if someone is exhibiting symptoms but may not have been tested yet because there aren't enough tests available or they can't get into the doctor, whatever it is, erring on the side of being cautious and treating that as a presumed, uh, you know, presumed to have COVID-19 um, is, is one of the ways a lot of employers have been handling it as a means of sort of doing it across the board so that you're not, you know, you're not making those decisions on, you know, one-off um, to, you know, prevent treating somebody differently than someone else based on, you know, whatever they might disclose or not disclose. Um, but while we're at this, I think this is a good opportunity to address the issue of taking temperatures. Have you run into that? I've run into that a lot. That That is um, another one of those areas where we're, we are, uh, overlapping 
employee privacy issues with the employer duty to make sure that the rest of the employees remain safe. Um, and I think that taking somebody's temperature is would be considered, in a normal sense, an invasion of medical privacy. Absolutely. Um, I think that what, we're, what we have here is this, is what are the ultimate consequences? So if an employer takes employee temperatures for purposes of trying to follow through with the CDC guidance, um, and uh, is the employee going to be able to bring a lawsuit for invasion of medical privacy that would be successful? I don't know where the courts are going to end up on this, but I think they will come up with some type of balancing test because medical privacy is not absolute. Uh, and uh, if there are certain situations, for instance, if we go and look at the drug testing laws, Drug testing is certainly a major violation of somebody's medical privacy, and yet the law allows certain drug testing to be performed um, under circumstances where the, it, the rights of the employees of the employer is overweighed or, or, by the, the rights of the employee. And I do believe ultimately if somebody brings a, a lawsuit claiming invasion of privacy because my employer is taking temperatures of every employee when they walk in the front door. My gut tells me that there's going to be a balancing test and the courts will eventually find some of this conduct, while normally an invasion of privacy would not give rise to a cause of action because of the superior interest of the employer to keep all of the other employees safe. But I'm just guessing right now because I don't know where the courts are going to go with this. Yeah, I, I mean, this is speculation, and I think even one step from that, I think what's going to what's going to really dictate that what you've said, and in addition to that, to what end? So, to what end did the employer take that information and use it? So, was it strictly to, as you said, as a you know, treating it as a direct threat, protecting the employees, doing all those things, or was there some you know, did an adverse employment action just happen to happen, you know? to this particular individual based on something they found out because of the medical test and somebody overshared. And so I think you're right. It's going to be a balancing test. And I think part of that evaluation is going to be, so what happened afterwards? You know, I agree. To what end? And, and for instance, in our, in our question that, that you uh, posited to begin with, um, if that employer, instead of just sending the employee home for 14 days, had terminated the employee for insubordination for refusing to provide the information, bad move, probably oh, a yeah. lawsuit. And, and so it's the ultimate consequences. But if an employer has some objective reason to believe that there might be um, the contagion in the workplace, I don't think the employer is going to get in serious trouble, I don't think, uh, for sending somebody home for 14 days according to the, the CDC guidance, especially given that people sent home under those circumstances under most circumstances, will uh, qualify for the uh, extra paid sick leave uh, that we may be talking about later in this broadcast. But, uh, you know, if you're sending somebody home to shelter in place and they're going to be paid uh, sick leave at their, uh, I think, two-thirds of their rate, uh, basically they're getting some pay while they're sent home. Again, I think balancing of interest, uh, there's, there's not going to be significant uh, problems for the employer, and right. it's safe. It's safer for all the other employees in the office or warehouse or wherever this is. I agree. Okay, well, let's keep moving. I, well, you and I, we could just chat about this stuff all day. Okay, yeah. so why don't you? <laughs> why don't you take the next one? Okay, the next one is a little is similar but different. So. This question reads, I am 62 years old and have an autoimmune disorder. My condition has never affected my performance at work, so I have never had a reason to tell my employer about the disorder. Now, I understand that my condition puts me in a very high-risk category for catching the virus, and if I were to catch the disease, I might even die from it. I work in an essential industry, so we are still working. I really think I should stay home to avoid the virus, but I don't want to tell my employer about my condition because I fear they will treat me differently. Is there anything I can do? Now, do you want me to start off with the answer there, or do you want to start with that one, Teresa? Well, go, no, go ahead. Okay. 
All right, so this really comes down to the idea that, again, there are certain things about our medical uh, conditions that are private, and we don't have to tell our employer about them unless we seek accommodations based upon the condition, and then we don't still have to tell our employer about the condition itself or its symptoms or our prognosis, but we do have to provide the employer with understanding of what restrictions we have on our ability to do the, the, our essential functions of our job. In this particular situation, my recommendation to this uh, employee would be to go to the doctor and get a doctor's note that says, must work from home due to uh, a medic, you know, medical condition I'm treating this employee for, um, period. Not autoimmune disorder, no disclosure of the underlying condition. Uh, does that provide the employer with more information than it had before about the employee's medical condition? Certainly. Um, anybody who has been watching the news knows that the CDC has set forth certain categories of people that are high risk, including heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, things like that. So the employer may very well surmise that one of those underlying conditions exists if there's a doctor's note. But the only way to, what I would say, force the employer to provide the accommodation of work from home would be that the employer be made aware that this employee needs that accommodation or has that restriction. Then the employer must look at the essential functions of the job for that employee and determine if that employee can do those essential functions from home. Uh, in other words, is that accommodation a reasonable accommodation? If so, then the employer will be required to accommodate the restriction. If not, then the employer uh, can place the employee on essentially unpaid leave, uh, but for the, the uh, couple of weeks of potential paid sick leave we'll talk about shortly, uh, until the employee's restriction is no longer applicable and the employee can come back and work in the office or warehouse or wherever it may be. Yeah, and I think the one of the biggest things to remember with regard to this is this idea that people tend to overshare. And if you stop for a minute and think about how you can say it to the employer without disclosing the underlying condition and what you, you know, what you can do, how you can, you know, how you can say that without really going into what the condition is itself, what's the minimum you need to say. And, you know, so that they can ask you the right question, <laughs> you know, what do you need and how can we provide it? So mm -hmm. I think that's really important to know. And then on the certifications, it's really interesting at this point because there's a lot of things that employers can require certification for, but everything is really talking about now being flexible. It's not the fact that you can't ask for certification as an employer because you can, but you need to be flexible in, in that, what are, you gonna, what are you going to accept? Um, are you going to accept, are you gonna require a doctor's note? Well, at this point, it's not probably the best thing to do because if you're requiring a doctor's note, that means you're forcing an employee to go to a doctor's office, which is probably not the best place to be and might be overcrowded, and the doctors may not be able to, you know, issue the certification timely. So is there something else you can do? Can you get, you know, can you, will you accept an email off the bat? You can always accept, you can always also give uh, the employee the opportunity to provide the certification at a later date, so 30 to 45 days later. Well, you can always ask for the certification, make sure you follow up and get the certification, but what they don't want is for anybody to be holding up any kind of a benefit to an employee, including an accommodation to work remotely if they have, you know, something that requires them to work, you know, that could easily work from home. They don't want you denying anything, holding that up on getting a certification from the employee. So I think those are a couple important things to remember. Um, for uh, I'm getting the signal to take a break. So we're going to take a break for a few minutes. And when we come back, more COVID-19 Q&A. Stay with us. We'll be right back. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Information about children with this disease is limited, but they are known to have had mild symptoms. Many organizations are responding accordingly, depending upon their area. It's best to stay home and away from others, especially when sick, 
and continue following healthy hand wash guidelines, covering mouth and nose and not touching your face or high-touch surfaces. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces regularly, and for more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us, like us, give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It means a lot to us, and it ensures more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with plaintiff's attorney, Neil Pedersen, and answering COVID-19 related questions. So, Neil, let's keep plugging on. I love this next I love this next question. I've gotten this so much. So uh, the question is, my employer has closed the office and told each of us to work from home. I've set up my uh, place to work in my home to be my office, and I work there every day using my own computer, my internet service, my mobile phone, my own office supplies to carry out my duties. Shouldn't my employer be paying me for the use of my stuff? It says, uh, my employer tells me I'm lucky to be working with millions of people out of work, so I should be happy with my paycheck. Are they wrong? I'll take a stab at that one. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's funny with all this stuff. Everybody thinks that all the laws are different now. We have to realize that all the laws are not different now. We do have some additions. We have some new things that we're working with, but it hasn't, they've enhanced, not replaced existing laws. So an employer must still reimburse an employee for all the necessary expenditures or losses that they incur. Um, in carrying out the job duties or their employer directives. And that includes when you've sent people home in a COVID-19 related environment to work remotely. It's interesting though, is how that's being done. So for example, when it comes to pens, papers, office supplies, so the office supplies you need. If you're an employer, how can you handle that without an out of pocket expense? Because you could just do an expense to the employee Just come up with a reasonable amount to cover that. Talk with the employee. What do you think it's going to look like? Get an idea. Maybe do a survey of your employees so you have an idea and you can come up with some sort of a reimbursement amount. Or you could handle it without out-of-pocket cost for, you know, you could go through normal procedures, um, ordering office equipment and having it delivered to that individual's home office or having it available for curbside pickup at the office location. Of course, keeping... Uh, you know, in place with CDC, local health uh, department requirements for masking, gloves, um, distancing, all of that sort of stuff. The tricky thing is the cell phone and the internet. So, and Neil, chime in if you've heard something different, but I can find no set amount uh, for these types of reimbursements. So when it comes to cell phone and internet usage, um, a lot of employers are just sort of coming up with a reasonable per month amount to pay the employee. And that includes these temporary payments um, while employees who normally work in an office are now working remotely. And there's just really no way because of the way that everybody's cell systems are different, their cell phone bills are different, they've got bundled services, they have unlimited this, unlimited that. So it's really just trying to get a feel for what a reasonable impact is going to be in the short term on that employee's system. Have you heard anything different, Neil? Well, kind of. Okay. So <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the case law has developed over the last several years regarding people using their own mobile phones, their cell phones. Uh, and so I think we can uh, look to that, the mobile phone case law, and apply it to internet usage or other other services that the the employee is paying for at home. I, I still don't know exactly how to deal with it when there's like bundles, but I'll tell you how I'm dealing with it in my office. But the bottom line is this. When an employee is required to use their own cell phone, um, a case came down a couple years ago that said that Labor Code Section 2802, which is the labor code section that says employers must reimburse employees for work-related expenses incurred by the employee, uh, that in that situation, uh, the employer owes the employee that percentage of the of the monthly usage charge for the cell phone that represents the percentage of time that the employee is using their phone for business-related purposes. Uh, now, that's 
that's not a real bright line, but at least it is a standard. Um, so here's what I've done with my employees that I've sent all, I sent them all home to work from home uh, a couple days before Governor Newsom did it to everyone else. Um, and the rule is they are every month supposed to submit their uh, cell phone bill and their internet bill. Um, and I want them to give me a good faith estimate of the amount of time that they are spending at home using the internet for business purposes and how much of their time they're spending using their phone for business purposes. I will review those and as long as I feel those are good faith estimates, then I'm going to pay that percentage of each of those bills um, as a reimbursement to them for those, those costs. As to office supplies, I've said to them, if you need office supplies, go to Staples, go to Walmart, wherever you go to buy these things, and keep your receipts and submit your receipts, and I'll reimburse you for the actual cost of the office supplies. And when this is all over, if you have some left over, bring them into the office because the office paid for them, and we can put them with the rest of the inventory at the office. To me, it was just easier for a small firm of 14 people to uh, be able to uh, do it that way. But that's, that's how I approach it. And I think that's the way a lot of small businesses handle it. And I think that, you know, that's coming up with that reasonable sort of per month amount. You're asking them to sort of, you know, show me the bill. Let's talk about it. And I think with bigger workforces, they're kind of doing the same sort of thing. You know, they're saying trying to come up with for this particular workforce, what would look like a reasonable amount. But they've also at least the employers that I've talked to, you know, we talk about the fact that if you have a particular employee who comes to you and says, hey, you know, this really doesn't cover it. My, you know, this really took up more bandwidth than I thought it would or more data use, whatever it might be. Then you got to be willing to work with that employee because it's, you know, it is what it is. Talk about it. Like you're saying, you'll look at it and determine whether you feel it's reasonable and in keeping with what they're, you know, what they're uh, representing. And I think you got to do the same thing. If you come up with a reasonable amount where you didn't take a survey of the employees, you're just, you know, you're taking kind of a stab in the dark and you think it's going to be sufficient, be willing to work with those employees to make sure that you're coming up with amount that is reasonable for that person's use if they feel it's more than uh, what you've already allocated. Right. right. You have to keep right. in mind, the employers have to keep in mind wear and tear. For instance, my secretary for the office is working out of her home and was using her own printer but she's putting a tremendous amount of wear and tear on a personal printer. Um, and so we've had to work something out where actually I've provided her with a printer that she can use that belongs to the office for purposes of that. So that there's, because you're going to have to also compensate for wear and tear if, in fact, there's moving parts type of equipment that's being used. Yeah. And I think all that's important. You know, the biggest thing about that, I think, when it comes to this is communication. This is an issue you should be able to communicate easily with the employees about, you know, this was our best effort. You know, if, if there's something different going on, let me know. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, let's see if we can figure out something reasonable. And that is a good point, you know, about using their, um, you know, the type of equipment that's being used at home and all of that sort of stuff. And there's ways to, you know, if you talk with people, like there's ways like you have, there's ways to come up with solutions for that, that work for everybody, whether it's, you know, loaning office equipment from the office or taking into account, let's, you know, let me take care of this aspect or let me take care of that aspect. So I think communication is really key. Let's keep moving. Let's see. Uh, I wanted to talk about, we're kind of getting down to it. I wanted to talk about um, one of the leave ones. Where's one of the leave ones that we had? Let's talk about this one. Um, I'll read this one out because I'm not sure you'll know where I'm at in our in our list here. Um, I'm a single dad. I recently had surgery on my back to address a sports injury from many years ago. I was on my 10th week of FMLA leave when the governor issued the stay-at-home order that meant my kids were at home full-time with no daycare. Now that I've finished my rehabilitation from the surgery, I want to get paid under the extended FMLA leave that I heard about, where you are paid to stay at home to take care of your kids. My employer says that I already exhausted my FMLA leave with the back surgery. Is this right? So you want to take a stab at that one first? 
Sure. <laughs> this is one where I have to say we're still in a very big gray area. Uh, and the reason for it is this. Um, normally under the FMLA, you get 12 weeks per year, per rolling year, of a leave to address a serious medical condition. Under uh, recent legislation, Congress has uh, created something called the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act that said that you're eligible for up to 80 hours of emergency paid sick leave and an additional 10 weeks of, of this uh, emergency family leave if you cannot work because you have to provide care to a child under the age of 18 due to a school closure, child care facility closure, or a child care provider unavailability due to the COVID-19 virus. So um, the problem we have here is that uh, it is unclear at this stage whether the 12 weeks that this gentleman took to rehabilitate from his back surgery exhausted all FML leave available to him, meaning he can't now take FML, the expanded FMLA leave, to take care of his kids. So we're in what I said was a gray area, because until there is more guidance, either statutory or case law guidance on the subject, there's going to be a debate. Uh, people on my side of the bar, representing employees, are going to argue that even though Congress labeled it an, an emergency family and medical leave expansion act that it was separate and different from the normal FMLA and the, the essentially 12 weeks under the new uh, law uh, is in, a, in addition to any you might have already taken prior to uh, the time for this need for leave in the last 12 months. Employers, on the other hand, are going to argue, and I know several have already taken a position, that if you used your 12 weeks, you don't get the additional 12 weeks for the emergency expansion leave. And so that's going to be an area that I think will be hotly uh, debated and litigated over the next year or two. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot more guidance than that. Yeah, I don't think there's much out there. You know, there's, like you said, it's it's a little unclear. The clarifications that came out, uh, I can't remember when, I, everything's a blur about when it came out at this point, but there were some clarifications that sort of gave a little more weight to the idea that they're trying to say that, um, that the full use of the, you know, that there's 12 weeks, you know, it's 12 weeks total. If you cut into that for regular FMLA, then, then that cuts into your emergency FMLA leave ability, you know, the length of time you have to take. So it's really going to be, like you said, it's just going to be one of those things that's just going to have to be worked out because it was just put through so quickly. Um, and they're trying to mesh unpaid leave with a partial paid leave and, uh, you know, by thinking they could just add one reason in there and make it work. I just don't think it's going to work. Well, I want to get to one more. Uh, oh, I want to get to one quick, more question. Oh, can I just one quick thing to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. When, when, when earlier I said there's an ultra-conservative approach employers can take, the ultra-conservative approach is to go ahead and give the leave, pay for the leave, and get your tax, uh, the, the, the benefits, the money that you paid out in, in the tax benefits that you can, um, in other words, there are ways that you can immediately take the money that you're paying to the employee back into your cash flow by taking back certain money that uh, normally would have been paid to the government. So in other words, it would probably be, it will, there will be no risk and it will be less expensive perhaps to take the ultra conservative approach to just advance the leave. The next level of conservative approach would be at least give them the time off where they can still get um, unemployment insurance that will uh, reduce the potential exposure that the employer has. I think the least uh, conservative approach is to say, no, you have to be here at work. You're, you know, uh, your kids be damned. I just don't think that would be a, a good approach for an employer to take. I don't think so either. I think one of the things that the all the clarifications that I've looked at have made very clear that they want 
employers and employees to work together to find a way to make this stuff work to find protections, to be, you know, protective and to carry out the intent. So there's always the letter and the intent. And I think that they, they're, I've seen more than one time where, you know, in the act, in the clarifications, it said, you know, work together, be flexible, you know, try as much as you can to make this work any way that you can that, you know, that works for the situation. So I think that's going to come into play a lot um, after this, when all, everything starts shaking down and, and you have to come down to it. All right, I want to do one more question. I'm getting I'm getting Paul's gesturing at me and I want to make sure <laughs> that we get this one last question in cuz I think it's really important. Um so uh I, again I'm going to read this one out cuz I uh I'm going to Oh, it's mm-hmm. the one right below that one. Neil, you want to take that one? The furlough? Sure. Uh, so the question is my employer furloughed about half of the employees when Governor Newsom issued his stay home order. I was in the half that was sent home. I think it was unfair that I was sent home when other people with less seniority than me were allowed to stay and keep working. Isn't this discrimination? Would your answer be different if you knew that I took two months off for a work injury at the end of last year, and I think they're still mad about that? So, so let's let's address the so address the first issue. I want to make sure we touch on furlough versus layoff on this too. But go ahead and address the the discrimination question. Okay, uh, unfair maybe seniority. Unfortunately, though, is not considered a protected class in California. Uh, it's certainly protected by many union collective bargaining agreements, but outside of a union environment, seniority is uh, really has no. Uh, legal uh, priority. Uh, the the real issue is, uh, did the employer choose who to who to keep and who to send home based upon membership in a protected class of people, race, color, national origin, sexual preference, gender, religion, etc. Uh, if 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 the the employer used an improper uh, basis for sending people home or keeping them at work, then it would be discrimination. The answer to the question is straight up, is it discrimination? Yes. Anytime you make a decision where some people get one thing and the other get another, it's discrimination. But the real issue is, is it unlawful discrimination? And the answer is only if the, if the decision was made based on a protected class. Okay. So I- I want to address one of the issues that this person sort of brought up with regard to um, it's kind of an employer side thing, but the furlough issue. Um, I really think that the uh, there's another question that I wanted to, that I also wanted to get to. Hopefully, we can still get to. Um, but on the decision to make furloughs, so uh, Neil and I, we were preparing the show. We sort of were chatting about how those decisions are made and the best way to make them from an employer perspective. Uh, Neil and I had a case, uh, pregnancy discrimination case, and the uh, employer that we sued was a very large employer. And the evidence that they came back because this uh, pregnant individual got caught up in a layoff as well. So the employer's argument was that it was a legitimate business reason. This is part of a layoff. The layoff was conducted uh, in, a, in a very uh, impersonal way. And the, it was it was a byproduct that the fact that this person was laid off happened to be pregnant. And the information that they showed us was really interesting because we got to see the documents on how they did. They made the determination of who was to stay and who was to go. And it was really interested, uh, really interesting because it was very hands off. Uh, it was strictly uh, business related factors applied anonymously across the organization, across the departments. And Neil, you remembered something I didn't. What was the other factor that you that you thought was really interesting? Well, they, they uh, provided data for the general demographics of the employees of the company as a whole, and then the demographics of the employees included in the layoff. In other words, they went through the various protected categories, and they said, you know, uh, 27% of our workforce is Asian, and 24% of those laid off were Asian, and they went through each of the protected classes to show that they actually looked before pulling the trigger at uh, the not just the actual numbers, but whether the decision to lay off certain people 
had some type of what we call a disparate impact on members of certain protected classes. And so it was very smart. This is a very large company with, with several thousand employees, and they had all of these statistics that they ran through a computer and spit out this information, and it made it far more difficult for us to be able to prove that, in fact, our particular client was included on the layoff list because she was in a protected class, i.e. pregnant. Um, so I, I think it makes great sense for employers to make sure that they aren't either even implicitly uh, making decisions based upon protected classifications to statistically look at the effect of their decision before they actually make the decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I'm being told we're going to take one more break and we come back. We're going to hear uh, some thoughts from Neil on how he has pivoted his own firm uh, in response to these shelter at home issues. So stay with us. We'll be right back. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Information about children with this disease is limited, but they are known to have had mild symptoms. Many organizations are responding accordingly, depending upon their area. It's best to stay home and away from others, especially when sick, and continue following healthy hand wash guidelines, covering mouth and nose and not touching your face or high-touch surfaces. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces regularly, and for more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It sure means a lot to us, and it ensures that more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking with plaintiff's attorney, Neil Pedersen. Neil, since COVID-19 and the California shelter-in-place orders, we've had some wonderful guests on the show sharing their COVID-19 stories. And I would love to hear, and I'm sure listeners would too, how you've been managing from a business and sort of a personal perspective. Sure. Happy to share. Uh, I have, um, I, I think I said earlier, I have about 14 employees, uh, Three of them in particular uh, are caring for uh, older uh, parents uh, or spouses who are in a very high-risk category. Uh, and so even before Governor Newsom set the uh, stay-at-home order in place, I decided to uh, have everybody in the firm shelter in place at home and work from home. Uh, I, it was a bigger challenge than I thought it was going to be, but it's really worked out well. And I thought I might share with uh, with the listeners here some of the things that I found made it um, made it easier, and some of the challenges that I had. I also was just before going on the broadcast today, looking at some of the news, and there's already talk about the fact that we may have similar situations seasonally. Uh, for instance, sometime in late fall or early winter when cold and flu season comes around, we may have similar types of situations because this may be a seasonal issue for us. So I think it makes sense for everybody to uh, start putting in place contingency plans for longer-term use of work-from-home um, uh, uh, protocols and the like. So... From the business perspective, I can I basically have identified three things I think that I can uh, can pass along some some wisdom here. Number one, I, using technology has allowed us to re remain flexible and do this on a on a quick note. We had a meeting at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon on Monday morning at eight thirty. We were all ready to work from home. The only reason we were able to do that is we had some technology already in place that I would like to recommend that our listeners um, consider. First of all, for years I resisted going to VoIP phones. Those are phones that are uh, voice over internet protocol phones as opposed to normal analog uh, phones. The neat thing about the VoIP phones is that uh, we went to those new phones back in January, very fortuitous, uh, when we moved offices. 
And the nice thing about a VoIP phone is that I was able to unplug my phone at the office, drive home, plug it into the internet at home, and that same phone with the same phone number hooked up to the same network at the office is operating on my home office desk that I'm speaking to you on right now. And everybody at the office was able to do the same thing. The nice thing about a VoIP phone is it's like its own little computer console, and it, you just plug it in wherever, and the Internet knows where it is. It's magic to me. But uh, the, the, the VoIP phones have really helped. Yeah. Um, secondly, some type of remote access hardware or software. We had a VPN at the office for some of the people, but now that I want everybody to have remote access, we went to some remote access software. There are several out there. But the one that we're using now, I'm not getting any money from them, so I'm not endorsing them. Uh, but I'm using TeamViewer right now, and it has been wonderful. That allows everybody in my firm to have remote access to the firm um, uh, network and all of the documents on the network. Um, we've already been uh, paper-free for over 10 years, meaning every document that comes in or goes out of the firm is scanned and placed into virtual file cabinets. If you're not there yet, it's also something I would suggest you do. Um, it is not as difficult as you might think. Uh, and th so from a technology point of view, the right kind of phones, the right kind of remote access uh, capability, and digitally uh, having your documents available to people that can have access to the office computer, uh, it makes it very, uh, very turnkey. Secondly, We've needed to put several protocols in place, procedures, practices, uh, that address the fact that we're not all working at the office uh, and necessarily not all working on the, uh, the office network, even though we're remotely accessing the network to get documents and things. So one of the biggest challenges I needed to do is to make sure that, I, uh, that we were maintaining one place for all digital documents, whether they be drafts or final documents, uh, when everybody's working at home on their own home computers, uh, you have to have certain pro uh, procedures in place to make sure that everybody, every day at the end of the day, drops all the documents they've been working on on their own computers back onto the main network so that there's still one place for all documents. Uh, finally, I've recognized that uh, workflow issues uh, need to be addressed when we're all working from home. And what I mean by that is I used to spend my days, in addition to doing the, the lawyer stuff I had to do, I spend my days uh, wandering the halls, talking to people about how they're doing, uh, what, net, what are their next projects, and it's just basic management. What I found is that when we're working from home, people are far more isolated. People are more likely just sending emails back and forth, and there's very little voice interaction. I find it very difficult to properly manage people, keep them motivated, keep them uh, moving in the right direction through just emails. And so I'm making a point of making voice contact with all of my employees, usually twice a week at the very least. That doesn't mean I'm not sending emails or we're not still processing uh, matters in the office the way we used to through emails and the like. But I think that voice contact is really important. I think employees who are left to be just working at home at their home office can feel very isolated. And you can ultimately end up with situations where you have employees suffering from depression or other, uh, other problems uh, because they're, they're not getting the normal interaction. I think we as as business owners need to recognize that employees need more than just email interaction uh, if you want them to be at maximum productivity um, uh, as much as possible. That was just awesome advice, Neil, really. I mean, I think that's great. I think that's really great. Um, so I want to just have you Tell me, if you can, how are you doing personally? How are you handling this? What's your, what was your biggest challenge personally, if you'll share it with us? Sure. My biggest challenge is the same thing I just shared about employees. I'm having a very hard time 
adjusting to a very different workday. My workday always was get up, get ready, go to the office, walk down the hallway to say hello to everybody, maybe a couple of words uh, about, you know, how was their weekend or, you know, whatever it might be, creating a, a personal connection with my employees, and then getting into my office and my day normally is 20 to 30 interruptions a day of people coming down to my office saying, can I ask you a quick question or can I talk to you about this particular issue? You know what that's, that's my like. my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yes. And I don't have that. Uh, what I'm doing now is I'm getting, I now receive about 180 emails a day. And I'm spending the vast majority of my time processing emails because everybody is communicating by email and it's, it's very different. It's a completely different um, uh, mindset. And from my point of view, I don't like it. I, I would much prefer to have a face-to-face -face and talk to people and be able to see if they're understanding what I'm saying as I'm trying to provide guidance or, or instructions. Uh, so my biggest problem is this last thing, the fact that we are not looking at each other face-to-face. -face. Now, I've considered perhaps going to something like Zoom or Skype or something that would allow me to see faces while uh, I'm talking. And that I, I may very well go to that for certain things, but I'm starting to adjust to this idea of, of it being, uh, of working remotely and not being there with each other, but it's still, it's still taking time. But that's my biggest problem. It's tough. I, you know, I'm getting, I have, well, I'm, I kind of have the opposite issue. So I have everybody now, everybody's doing a Zoom meeting or a Skype or a Teams or something. Um, even clients who before were happy with a phone call now want to Zoom me. So yeah. <laughs> right. I'm fairly used to, you know, I'm fairly used to working at home by myself, but I think that's interesting. And I do, I've heard that a lot, um, that that's one of the things people are struggling with. And I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Um, and I, I would encourage you to find a face-to-face -face communication, whether it's Teams or Zoom or uh, WebEx or something. I don't promote any of those, but I think it's a great tool. Um, and it's been really effective for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm getting the I'm getting the signal from Paul. It's going to be it for this episode. I want to thank you so much, Neil, for joining me and sharing your thoughts and experiences with our listeners. I really, really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Neil or Pedersen Law, you can find them on the web at PedersenLaw.com. That's P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N-L-A-W.com. You can also connect with Neil via our website at sapphirelegal.com slash podcast. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and our workplace perspective team extraordinaire, engineer producer Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective, and until next time, keep raising the bar.